Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And today's guest is the author of Ivy Land and True False, as well as a writer for Mel Magazine and the Miles High Club. Please welcome Miles Clee. Welcome, man. Hello, hello. Happy Friday. Good to be here. Yes. I love being scared. <laughs> all the all the usual stuff applies. Yes, well, it's certainly Happy Friday. Uh, and I also love being scared. And let's talk about that, because I always like to know where that started for you. You know, where did your love of horror come from? Yeah, I don't know. I, I think I just thought it was um, grown-up stuff and super titillating and, and insane. And I had a little brother growing up. Shout out to Brendan. Uh, he's, he still exists as, as a result, it was often kind of like a compromise at like movie, movie night on Friday night. You'd be like, Oh, you have to rent like a PG 13 movie or you're like, Oh, you have to rent something your brother wants to see. So whenever I got him out of the way, I would really press for like a, like a good gory <laughs> R movie. I remember when Halloween actually watching like the whole like Friday the 13th marathon, and just getting scared shitless. <laughs> I was having a great time then. But also, yeah, I remember having a sleepover with my buddy and I really wanted to rent Scream. I guess I would have been like 12 or something. It had just come out on, on DVD or whatever. And I had obviously hadn't seen it in the theater. And he was too scared to watch it. Or, you know, within the first five minutes, he was like, I can't do this. And, and I was such a dick friend that I was just like, okay, well, like, you go, like, read in the other room because <laughs> I have to watch this. <laughs> So I, always, I guess I always thought of it as like, you know, a cool club to be in and that's where all the gnarly shit happens. <laughs> and you're just like, man, I got, I, the rules are, you, you get to that point as a kid where you start seeing the R-rated movies and you're like, wow, the rules are just totally different here. <laughs> like we could do anything. So I, I think I loved the transgression of it. I think I liked feeling like a older, older than I was and that I could handle it. And even when I couldn't, <laughs> even when I was just being very scared. You named a bunch of slashers in there. Is there a subgenre that stands out to you as your favorite? You know, going back to some of like some of the body horror, some of the kind of elevated horror, like I think I almost suggested like don't look now for this. I don't think you've done that yet. Right. That's a big fave, which is funny cuz it's like kind of that elevated horror before that was a thing. <laughs> Which is even funnier now that we're talking about slashers and that because in the new Scream, there's like a bunch of jokes about how the Gen Z girl just likes like the Baba right. Deuce or whatever, <laughs> which I love. Yeah, that's that wasn't a great movie, but it, it had some good jokes like that. So appreciate that. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I always love something that's atmospheric. And I think it's one of the reasons uh, I love the movie I suggested for this episode which is just, it really sets the mood. And, and Absolutely. I don't know, it just, just yeah, it, it, it gives you it gives you exactly the place and the time and the people. And yeah, they're just, you're just like, you're totally immersed in it. That's, that's my favorite kind of thing. Absolutely. And let's not beat around it any longer. We're talking about The Invisible Man, directed by James Whale and released in 1933. And whenever we throw it back this far, I always like to ask how you came to this movie and if you also like other universal classics or if this is kind of a one-off for you. So I would say I'm a big fan of James Whale, whose work I would have first seen in college, like for like a film class. I think we watched maybe Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. I don't think we watched this. And I got such a kick out of those movies. I was, I was kind of I was I'm almost kind of mad at myself for like not watching them as a kid. I was like, man, I would have uh, I would have loved these as a kid if I'd known or I had access to something like this. But you just mm -hmm. don't. Um, and 
Then I think even before Invisible Man, I probably watched Gods and Monsters, the movie about James Whale, where it's played by Ian McKellen. Another very good, creepy movie. Yeah, wonderful movie. And I think he he even says, in character as James Whale in that movie, he says to someone who's talking about Frankenstein, he's like, well, you know, I always preferred The Invisible Man. And maybe it was that that was like, oh, I should check out The Invisible <laughs> Man. And probably, yeah, I, I, I must have been like young 20s when I first watched it. And you're going through that phase, maybe some other people can relate to where you're you're just like, discovering all the old movies, the silent movies. And I don't know, it was probably a time when I was like having my mind blown by like Buster Keaton as well. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I watched like the old Alfred Hitchcock has like an old silent film. That's so sure. good. The tenant uh, that I'm blanking on. Yeah. I think, yeah, there's, there's like a blackmail one. It might even just be called blackmail <laughs> or something. I, I don't remember now, but yeah, just seeing some of what they could do back then. I was just getting such a kick out of that at the time. And invisible man was like, it instantly shot up there as like a, I cannot believe they could make this movie at that <laughs> yeah. time. I, it's mind blowing. It really is. One thing that I wanted to get your opinion on, just because I remember this really sticking in my craw when I saw the new Invisible Man, which I did think was pretty good. But one of the things I remember most vividly about being disappointed uh, in terms of it is that it's ultimately just like a camera suit and not a guy taking a potion. And I sat there and I was mm -hmm. like, okay, I understand why they made that choice, but I was still like mm -hmm. kind of disappointed. And I was like, have we moved past as a culture? <laughs> like the, can we just not have a movie where someone like takes a potion and goes crazy anymore? <laughs> I know. I know there's something so dispiritingly black mirror about that. We don't really want it to have like a logical explanation, <laughs> right? Like, it's not fun if, like, he's, I didn't see this new one, but what is he, like, a tech billionaire who invents this yeah. thing? Yeah, yeah, so you're like, oh, so, oh, great, so he's, like, a creepy Elon Musk guy who has actually pulled it off and done, you know, some high-tech, it's like a, you don't want it to be a gadget, right. I feel. So that, yeah, that is disappointing, and I love the more just, like, you just have to roll, with the potion, you just have to roll yeah. with it. <laughs> Either you're in or you're not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And I think I think the mechanism of the potion is very fun, actually, too, where it is like, yeah, we do have kind of an analog for this in nature. Where it's like things can camouflage themselves. And yeah, it's it's almost a question of like, what, yeah, what if you just injected yourself with like some chameleon genes <laughs> or something? It's like that's kind of the question it's asking, which I love so much more as like a deranged scientific experiment, because there's there's really no expectation for that to work. But he was just doing it for. What, what is he? He says he's working on it for like five years yeah. right before he cracks it. And then he's just like, yeah, then one day it just works. You're like, oh, hell yeah. <laughs> that's that's science, baby. <laughs> <laughs> that's the method. <laughs> so The Invisible Man is originally a very influential 1897 novel by H.G. Wells, widely considered to be the father of science fiction and helping to create an inextricable link between horror and sci-fi by the virtue of mm. this being one of the yeah. very first sci-fi books so that's very true i hadn't i hadn't thought about that but yeah w when i was getting excited to watch it again i was like oh i'm so happy to see a mad scientist which is like maybe yeah maybe an underused sort of archetype at this point and uh, yeah an interesting comparison to the like tech dude which is not really like mad science it's just like rich guy science really. <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> Totally, just seemingly different objectives. Like, yeah, would the tech bro, like, want to create 
Frankenstein's monster. Like, why would he? I don't know. Yeah, they just seem to have totally different kind of goals or mindsets. And yeah, I love I love the mad scientist mindset so much. Absolutely. One of the big influences on the book that I think carries through into the movie is actually Plato's Republic. Okay. Wells had mentioned reading it in his youth and loving it. And in the second (laughs) book of the Republic is the story of the Ring of Gyges, where they put forward the idea that a man who was invisible and able to act however he wanted would, quote, go about among men with the powers of a god. Yeah, yeah. And this, this movie really just puts that to the test. It's like, well... You have some powers, but you were extremely <laughs> hampered in other ways. <laughs> Certainly is. It's so funny. Yeah, I I can't believe that. I, I haven't thought about the Ring of Gaijus thing since college either. That's so fun. I love that that's in Plato. He was just on one with that. Like, <laughs> he's just like, what if, yeah, I, it's so good to just be like inventing like Western morality as you know it and just be like, what if you were invisible? <laughs> and it's, and it is a perfect thought experiment. He was, he's, he's just so right about that. Yeah. Yeah, and, and we just see it here, and we just see him go, he's already out of his mind. When yeah. <laughs> and it, I love that the movie starts with him already invisible, already out of his mind. Just, there's just nothing wasted. Oh, yeah, there is no there's, fat on this movie. <laughs> oh, my gosh, they are in it right away. <laughs> That's what I love about the Frankenstein movies, too. You know, and Bride of Frankenstein is super weird, but <laughs> all three of them are really weird and, and short and effective. Yeah. Definitely. So jump forward from the book to 1931. Dracula is a smash hit for Universal. And although they went with Frankenstein next, they were already considering the Invisible Man. And Mm -hmm. they bought the rights from Wells for $10,000 and script approval. And that $10,000 is uh, $183,422 now. Okay. Okay. (laughs) I it's kind of blowing my mind that he was alive at the time. Like that's just, it's just totally incongruous <laughs> to like how I think of him. Yeah. Once that turn of the century happens, you're like, everyone died at 1900. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, you don't get into the century. Wait. So yeah, I guess he would have been older. So I, I mean, it, yeah. So I guess he would have seen this movie. Maybe. Yeah. Uh, he did get script approval ultimately. And, uh, okay. and then began the great invisible man shell game. <laughs> So Frankenstein was breaking box office records and Karloff was on a five-year contract. So Universal said, great, we're going to bring Whale and Karloff back for the Invisible Man. Mm. But Whale got scared about being pigeonholed and left, leaving Karloff attached to a movie with no director or script. Not ideal. Right. So Robert Flory came in to direct and he worked on a script with Garrett Fort, who'd also worked on both Dracula and Frankenstein. And where this script was different is that it was heavy on incorporating the Philip Wiley novel, The Murderer Invisible, including such hits as Blowing Up Grand Central Station, uh, Invisible Rats, and An Invisible Octopus. And in Dracula, (laughs) one of my favorite things in the entire movie is the vampire armadillo and bee. In, in, in that just have like a little vampire coffin for the bees and everything. And I think that I finally tracked down who put those things into Dracula. If this guy is trying to put an invisible octopus mm. into, into this movie, um, I would have been, I would have been on board. Yeah. So someone had some interesting <laughs> ideas, just trying to push the envelope, you know? Yeah. 
And the problem was that because they were pushing the envelope, it was taking a long time to work out the tech issues, and Universal wasn't willing to squander Karloff, so they put him on the old dark house, which was being directed by James Whale, who'd retreated back to the safety of horror after getting financially spanked on the impatient maiden. So now they have a director and most of the script, but no star. Got it. Well, they're going to get a great star. I mean, yeah, this man... Oh man, he's he's fantastic, but there's still a little bit to go. I mean, one yeah. of the Universal producers left to start Bischoff Productions, and he took Flory with him. So now they're down a director again, and they replace okay. him with Cyril Gardner, but the script isn't working right, and there's nothing approved. So he and the script both get kicked to the curb, and they're at ground zero, square uh, one. That's so frustrating. I've been there, baby. <laughs> Here's where things get interesting, because Whale says, okay, I'll come back, and what's going to happen is we're going to have a script by the great Preston Sturgis, and that's cool. Love Preston. Yeah. (laughs) And his idea was that it was going to be a Russian chemist who makes a madman invisible to get revenge on the Bolsheviks, and it was described as a transparent Scarlet Pimpernel, and this sounds so fun. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, release that cut. That is really fun. That's like a that's just like perfect B side to this movie. Yeah. Honestly, which is so much about like kind of the aristocracy, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> that's really wonderful. He put in eight more weeks of work on this script, handed it in, they hated it and fired him the next day. <laughs> what a legend. <laughs> he knew that he knew they would hate it too. He was <laughs> like it's, this is just for me. <laughs> that was his um Sullivan's travels. <laughs> oh, Preston. Amazing. Whale wrote the next attempt at a script himself, but Wells didn't like it. He didn't approve that script. So Whale again said, fuck this and left. (laughs) (laughs) How many times is he going to quit this movie? So many times. It's now 1933. We're at least finally in the year. Okay. (laughs) They had lost 1.25 million in 1932, which is just under 25 and a half million now. So they took a step back. And they said, we're going to shut down for a few months after we finish the movies on our current production slate because we just need to, like, have some income for a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. But they just can't nail down The Invisible Man. So there's one other set of writer and director that falls through. But finally, we have Whale back with R.C. Sheriff as the screenwriter. Mm. And he brings in a script with Wells' approval to Universal in July 1933, the 14th script... <laughs> 14th time's the charm. 14th time's the charm, just under two years after they intended to finish, compared to Frankenstein, which was just a handful of months for pre-production. Wow. So quite the troubled production, but it's funny how taking all that time to get it right did pay off, because it really, yeah, yeah. you'd never know well, that it was it's so like troubled. Trying to, it's, try, it's like trying to get that invisibility formula. It's not going to happen <laughs> overnight. Trial and error. So true, so true. And Whale, uh, he knew Claude Rains as a stage actor, though Claude was on the edge of hanging it all up to become a farmer in New Jersey because he was so broke. (laughs) Ah, my home state. And they brought him on despite Universal's reluctance to cast an unknown actor. And it's great because not only is Claude fantastic, but I think specifically it is that theatricality that really works for me in this movie, especially because ultimately he has to do so much with just his voice. Yeah, no, he's... he's What's the opposite of phoning it in? It's just kind of like... (laughs) Earnest. (laughs) It is so... It's like the quintessential over-the-top performance. And yeah, you're totally right. It's that he just has to like... He has to convince you that he's there in the room and scenes where he's just not. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And he pulls it off. 
marvelous. And after they'd finally finished filming, the special effects took another two months to complete in secret. And interestingly, Universal lied to people about how it was done. They were like, it was just mirrors the whole time. Oh my god, come on, you know, it's not just... Right. It's so, it's so funny that they were like, people will buy that. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, I, I, love new. Sec- I love the secrecy of it. I love, that's like a, that's a great, like, pre-no-spoilers type of <laughs> situation. Yeah, and the effects are just incredible i still think it looks better than like any cgi (laughs) oh no doubt in my mind it's it looks incredible and john p fulton gave an interview to american cinematographer magazine he explained that they had a set completely enrobed in black velvet and an actor who wore black velvet tights plus the invisible man's clothes and they double exposed that and overlay the film elements together using matte photography to allow the clothes to appear to travel on the background print, and then touching up the lighting frame by frame with a brush and dye. Did someone go blind doing that? That just sounds so hard. (laughs) Oh my gosh, I can't even imagine how time-consuming that would be. (laughs) That's why it's a short movie, I think. (laughs) (laughs) So we'll talk specifics as we work through the plot, but suffice it to say up top, like you said, these special effects are unreal. They still look incredible. They're fantastically innovative and uh, a true landmark in cinema history for my money. Oh my God, yeah. Just indelible images. Like Even if you just... Even if you just Google, like, the Invisible Man and see, like, one frame of him without, like, the the covering on his jaw or whatever, (laughs) and you're just seeing straight through, it's like, oh, sublimely creepy. (laughs) Yeah, oh, man, I love especially the one where it looks like the skull, like, he has uh, just the the nose hole and the the eyes open. Yeah, he looks like a mummy. Oh, great. Uh, And so for their money, it wound up being around $328,000, which is roughly $7 million today to make the movie. Worth it. Definitely worth it. The total gross is unknown, (laughs) which I thought was very strange. Wow. Yeah. What like what fixers like suppressed that number? (laughs) I don't know, but it did perform well on the East Coast and London, breaking records at the New York Roxy. But flopping on the west coast oh what the hell (laughs) i'm disappointed you know talking from la i'm just like well people appreciate movies here but i guess that's not not always true i guess not the contemporary reviews were very positive but also of note of course are the directors we know and love who also herald this movie like john carpenter joe dante ray harryhausen Mm. they all famously adore this movie and more immediately, it launched Claude Rains to Hollywood superstardom. So there you go. Hell yeah. Didn't have to get moved to New Jersey. <laughs> you did it, Claude. <laughs> so to get into the actual movie, I love this opening. The wind is howling and the snow is whipping and a heavily bundled man approaches the Lion's Head Tavern. The contrast between his isolation walking up this path and the place that feels so warm with laughter and music, it's so, like, it seems like a fun tavern to be in. Just a great contrast to start off the movie with. Yeah, he's he's already the loneliest guy in the world. Yeah. <laughs> and, and such a dick when he walks in. You're like, you almost expect, I mean, if you put yourself there, you would think, I would try to keep a low profile, because I'm already looking like a goddamn mummy, just bandaged head to toe. And to me, it says, I mean, and because it's in Britain and James Whale, James Whale's background, I think it, there's a ton of class packed into that, that first encounter because, yeah, he's, he's, he's the worst, he's the worst 
boarding house kind of like upper crust guest coming into this like earthy tavern where everyone's just kind of like normal and chilling. Yeah. <laughs> and he immediately like disrupts the entire energy of the place. Yeah, even even before he does anything like expressly evil, he's just such a jerk. <laughs> he leaves the door open. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's letting the snow in. <laughs> demanding things you can already tell this you're like all right this guy might be invisible but like i know even before he was invisible he's never said please in his <laughs> life and i don't know yeah something something about the class consciousness there it strikes him as a villain so immediately and you're like yeah i guess if you were going to the movie originally you're like i don't know if like the invisible man is a bad guy it could just be like an, a story about a guy who turns himself invisible and it's like <laughs> No, this guy is a real problem. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and interestingly, to play into that class aspect, I think that there is something about the way that they try to handle it extrajudicially, where they're, like, mm -hmm. playing very coy about it being Griffin and being like, oh, we'll take care of it ourselves. Yes, yes, yes. And, not, <laughs> and after he's done all this terrible stuff, they say, oh, well, we're going to close ranks and, and protect our own here. Yeah, yeah. And the, <laughs> yeah, the guys... Those upper crust guys really don't want to go to the police at all. <laughs> so when he rents this room, he makes a point of how he wants to be left alone. Uh, and the innkeeper brings his food and she's like, all right, sure, sure, sure. And then immediately barges back in with the mustard she forgot. <laughs> Loved this innkeeper. She is phenomenal. She's like a Mel Brooks character. Like, yeah. where does that come from? That's so funny. Also, uh, you already referenced it once, but an amazing little tease of the special effects is you see him eating with the bottom of his head missing and the growl of, I told you not to disturb me, as she's freaked <laughs> out. You know, it just really brings you into the world so quickly. Yeah, and as he's kind of, like, discovered in that, in that boarding house and kind of more people realize that there's something wrong with him, it's funny how none of them can like quite reconcile what they've seen. Like they, they all kind of struggle to describe it. Like I think the cop goes like, he's all eaten away. <laughs> and you're like, well, what the fuck is that supposed to mean? And yeah. like, it takes them a while to kind of even be able to formulate the idea that he's invisible. That process is like a real great, like slow, creepy realization. Like you as the viewer, you're like, it's called the invisible man. I know he's invisible, but seeing everyone else kind of like, somewhat somewhat realistically i would say for like a pretty out there movie coming to terms with that and the cops when they're like finally like okay we got to face the facts the guy's fucking invisible like <laughs> <laughs> nobody wants to believe it at first and then like they're they're just gradually worn down which i love yeah and the fact that nobody really has any ideas they're like we'll give you a thousand pounds to come up with a good idea on how to catch this guy oh the mo the montages of like the guys calling in with their dumb ideas for how to catch the invisible man it's just that's that's poetry to me like and the movie is so funny throughout. Yeah. That is one of the funnier things. We meet the other half of our gang next as we join Flora pleading with her father, Dr. Cranley, that they had to do something about her boyfriend, Jack Griffin, who is her father's employee at the lab. And he's been gone for a month with no word, but the note said it might be a bit and he was finishing up an experiment on his own. Now, this pisses off the other employee, Dr. Arthur Kemp, who is A, extremely pissy about Jack fucking off for as long as he wants. <laughs> he's more concerned about him getting away with that than actually being yeah. in trouble like Flora is. But also, he doesn't much like Jack as a scientist, saying he's meddling in things that men should have left alone. So straightforward scientists don't need barred doors and drawn blinds, he says. <laughs> he's having a, a Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park moment. <laughs> 
well, right down to the hitting on someone else's partner. Yeah, I know. You <laughs> could tell you can tell what he's really pissed about. Yeah. Like, you know. Yes, the truth comes out. He is also in love with Flora. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, back at the inn, Jack is pacing around unkempt as hell under these bandages and he says he's looking for a way back which is i think a really interesting way to phrase becoming visible again like Mm re-entering society Mm -hmm. it's like it's like after you get canceled you're just (laughs) trying to find the way back so true jack famously canceled so this is this is him trying to get it he went to the comedy cellar they said no even they said no (laughs) yeah you've already seen him be a dick to the the provincial people but then here, the, I think when he's got his test tubes out and he's talking about it way back, he starts to really tap into his like raving, ranting, <laughs> lunatic vibe, which is what will become the defining thing of the Invisible Man, where he's like, he's just, he's just on one permanently <laughs> and just getting carried away with himself, whatever it is. Like he's incapable of doing like anything just like small or simply. He's just <laughs> doing the most, and, it, and that's why that Claude Rains performance is so good. Yeah, absolutely. He forces her out when she uh, she's like, oh, lunch is at one o'clock. No ifs, ands, or buts. And he, she tries to force her way in. But he shoves her and the tray back out with the door. And she demands that her husband, the barman, throw him out. He's a week behind on money anyway. Get his ass. <laughs> he attacks and throws the barman down the stairs. This feels so much more intense and aggressive in a truly physical way than any of the other Universal Classics. And I think really does help to set him aside from a lot of the other ones. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think because you're doing a lot of imaginative work in the film to situate, like, his body in space where you don't see it, and the effects are doing so much work to, like, show you where he is and how he's moving, that inevitably you get like really tied up in like bodies as a whole and like what other bodies are doing on screen and and yeah to like see like nothing throw a guy downstairs <laughs> is just crazy and you're like the fact that your mind kind of like fills in the blanks again the the ring of gaiju's like thought experiment you are just kind of supplying all the information there that they've given you kind of like pieces missing yeah which is just it's just like it's super exciting it just lights up your brain there's something very stimulating about it that sounds weird no it's very visceral i think it 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 really does connect in a way that something that is obviously computer generated just doesn't yeah and and you and you follow you follow completely the logic of it because like yeah that guy fell down the stairs (laughs) (laughs) he sure fucking did I also love the wife screaming when you can hear it in the other room as they go I up have, the stairs. Yeah. With the, I had with to the like police. literally turn it down because my windows <laughs> open. And it's, it's like someone's going to think I'm murdering an old lady up here, but she's so incredibly shrill. Yes. And it's perfect screaming. I, I don't know like when, I guess it was, would it be this era of movies that was kind of defining the like horror movie scream? Because I guess that, you know, could be, became, you know, a, whole, became a whole thing. I, I've heard her called the first scream queen. <laughs> Really? No, I just made oh, that wow. up right now. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to be like, all right, pour one out for a legend. Uh, no, she is a legend. Too. Yeah. She, hey, she we're starting queen. that right now. There you go. Yeah. First Scream Queen. First Scream Queen. Got to look up her actual name. Merle Tottenham. She plays, okay, she plays Millie. Name. Yeah. The cops try to arrest him, and Griffin says he's being driven mad by their constant peering and annoying him, and so now they're going to pay the price, and... <laughs> Oh my gosh, him peeling off the bandages, finally fully revealing his head or lack thereof is just so amazing. 
he goes full sicko mode <laughs> and and i and i i mean i have said this to like anyone who i've kind of like evangelized this movie to but just the concept of the monster or the bad guy or the villain or something when he kind of like activates just t- getting naked <laughs> like it is so funny and so like messed up and twisted. And it's like, there's a way in which I can't believe this movie wasn't kind of censored because even for just like implying that a guy is walking around naked, even though you're not seeing, it's not like a guy is like hanging down for the movie, but you, like, we know. like 50, yeah, like 50% of the action of this movie, this guy's got his dick out. Technically. They talk about it all the time too. He's constantly like, I'm so cold. It's so cold in this winter. <laughs> And I, yeah, that's what makes me love the atmospherics of it all the more. I mean, just the way he actually is always on the brink of hypothermia. <laughs> uh, what a legend. What a legend. It's incredible. And his mania as he runs around the room, they try to arrest him as he just sheds his clothes. Yeah. yeah. The funny portrait of the innkeeper on the wall behind him uh, as well. Smashing it. It's a funny movie. It's a very funny movie. Slap that's that's like a very slapstick moment and there's a lot of slapstick stuff in it and I love he's finally down to just the shirt right and then they're like uh, how, how am I gonna wreck the shirt you know <laughs> like the cops just don't know what to do and then and then finally the cop just picking up the shirt that like he's clearly <laughs> taken off <laughs> got and him fucking got yeah, him yeah just like uh well job well done yeah cuff him boys <laughs> <laughs> And interestingly, again, playing into that class struggle aspect where he goes to choke out this cop specifically for thinking of him as a common criminal. Yeah, yeah. He's like, no, I'm like a super villain, bitch. Yeah, bitch. Don't, don't, <laughs> don't, you, don't you ever twist it again. Yeah, no, it's so funny. Yeah, you mentioned that there, he's like hasn't paid for the fucking hotel. Like, why did he not, he didn't even like bring money like it, that that's such a fucking rich guy thing to just be like no I'm allowed to live in your attic for as long as I want just because of my station in life like I don't his attitude is so funny yeah and and he escapes out the front door causing mayhem as he goes this is I think part of why I love the invisible man so much is just because he is having fun Frankenstein yeah. is so gloomy and and there's the seductive energy of Dracula that he's going for but it's not anywhere like this guy throwing bikes hitting people with brooms tipping over a stroller laughing all the while <laughs> he sounds like the Joker when he, the, the laugh is haunting I'm like I don't want to hear any, about anyone playing the Joker until you hear this <laughs> <laughs> Until you hear this guy laughing. And yeah, he's like a prankster. He's so juvenile about it. Classic scam. Yeah, it is like it is like being invisible has also turned him into a shitty eight year old <laughs> who has that power. <laughs> and who could blame him? Who can who can really say that they for oh sure God. wouldn't turn into an eight year old? And it's just chaos, just mayhem all over. Yes. yes uh, yeah, is. riding riding I picture him riding the bike naked and I just laugh about that. <laughs> Not comfortable. No, no. Back at the lab, they find the only clue, which is a list of chemicals, including monocane, a chemical that draws the color from things, but also destroys materials and makes living things mad. There you go. Explained. <laughs> Explained. Yeah. It. The yeah. The guy's like, I read the monograph about how uh, this plant uh, makes you the Joker. <laughs> <laughs> it's the society plan it, but, but it was only yeah he was like it was only in a german magazine so. 
He might not have seen it. <laughs> who knows? Who knows? <laughs> that night, as Dr. Kemp is listening to the radio, he hears a broadcast talking about a region of the country struck by a delusion of being attacked by an invisible man. But as he's listening, we also see some slight movement behind him. And then the voice of Jack Griffin emerges from the ether. Again, very ah. dramatic, very ah. fun. <laughs> Listen, it's so it's. I think it's so smart. One of the smartest things in the script is that it's diagnosed as a mass hysteria. Yeah, it, it takes it takes yeah. me back to those old gothic novels that are very much about the duel between the enlightenment and superstition. And I love the immediate assumption that these country bumpkins <laughs> just drank a bad batch of whiskey or something, and they're just out of their minds thinking there's an invisible guy. No, there's an actual invisible guy actually, <laughs> and it's because. And twist, it's because of science. Wow. So, hoisted on your own petard, yeah. So true. <laughs> Jack pulls up a chair, and he has Kemp get stuff so he can get wrapped again, which is uh, also funny that he's like, yeah, you're freaked out, aren't you? I guess we'll uh, make it easy for you to at least picture <laughs> me here. <laughs> Kemp gets him some nice stuff. It's a nice robe. I've wanted to do this Halloween costume for a long time, but it's high commitment, and got to get a really nice robe. And I have a nice robe, but I got to get like a specifically a different kind of robe. It's a very specific sunglasses, too. Yeah. Oh, those are great. Those are like early driving glasses or something. They're cool. They're very cool. Badass. Pre-Matrix stuff. Yeah. (laughs) Now, I really love this moment where because so he, he tells Kemp to go get this stuff and Kemp goes for the door. But he's like, ah, 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 I'm fucking watching you, Kemp. Um, this idea of the Invisible Man being anywhere and everywhere is definitely played up a lot in this, but it's used very effectively, I think, in a way that's uh, a lot of fun. It's really good. Yes, and, the, and they do keep you guessing at these critical moments of, like, could he be in this room? There's often, there's often someone saying, he could be in this room right now. <laughs> and then he never is. Like, he's, they'll just, like cut to him doing something completely else <laughs> but then when they don't think about the fact that he could be there he is there wow and they just like they invert your expectations so well with that stuff yeah I, i'm kind of reminded too of the how invisible man is in um league of extraordinary gentlemen the comic anyway the graphic novels and just always fucking with people that exact way where mm-hmm. he's like <laughs> he'll he'll only surprise he'll only surprise them and if, like, anyone suspects that he's there, he's never actually there. And it's, and it's, it's wonderful. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. And he tells Cap that he wants him to be his visible partner. We'll start with a reign of terror. A few murders here and there. <laughs> this is the best monologue ever. He goes in and just says, we have to start randomly killing people. <laughs> We'll take we'll take out the big man and the little man just to yeah, show. No, I, he's all right. It's yeah, it would be one thing if Griffin was like, let's take out some heavy hitters. This targeted assassination. I'm kind of like with you there. Like that <laughs> could make sense. But then he's like, we'll also kill poor people just to show we make no distinction. And you're like, well, I got to get off board again. I mean, I don't like I don't love this. Yeah. Like, now he's now he's a villain. <laughs> And it's almost as though he knows or he his plan is like, yes, I have to like shake things up at the at the highest levels and terrify, you know, like the great rulers of mm. the of the planet. But I also have to create like a folklore among the poor people sure. of a boogeyman could get you at any moment. <laughs> so I could control them as well. There you go. What a fucking sick guy. <laughs> this guy. He's tricky, he's tricky that uh that Jack Griffin. Yeah, man, man. 
And, you know, and, and pretty ambitious for a guy who was literally just like out ass naked in the snow <laughs> five minutes ago. Absolutely. I don't know. I love just side note him uh, smoking while invisible is a top favorite effect in there. And if I were invisible, I don't smoke cigarettes, but if I were invisible, I would smoke <laughs> cigarettes. You'd start. Yeah. It's a good habit to pick up. <laughs> The first real order of business, though, before the reign of terror is for him and Kemp to get the notebooks full of results that he left behind at the bar, where the police are still investigating and interrogating the patrons, suspicious that it's a hoax. And, you know, it makes sense that they think that it was a hoax, you know, in terms of the thematics and attitudes of the time and everything. But also, Mm -hmm. I think it is really good storytelling to make sure that there is still a police presence there when they go back to have them be like, oh, yeah, we have to go through and interview every single one of you because I know that you're all faking it and we're going to catch you. (laughs) Yeah, that police chief is not having that shit, but he's like, well, we'll be thorough at least. You know, now that you said this, there is another really fun thing about the film which is like does it happen over like 36 hours or something it's like a very not only short film but like compressed in terms of how long the action is taking and it is just essentially a chase not quite from the beginning but it becomes quite pretty fast it just becomes the the fugitive Mm -hmm. yeah the immediacy of it is also good like again not a frame wasted they had to edit the shit out of this I think it's very easy to imagine a world where we got a version where we see the five years leading up to the invention of this potion. And there's a lot of stagnant waiting around, but this movie by keeping it so active is very dynamic and it's constantly moving. Yeah. It's, it's so lean and, and it's, and when he comes in with the brain of terror idea, it is the last thing you're expecting. (laughs) Again, he, he just completely throws you for a leaf where you're like, I thought you were trying to get visible again. Now you're talking about just random assassinations. Okay, <laughs> let's see where this goes. He is fully off the rails, and so will the train later. But <laughs> the policeman, like I said, he declares it a hoax, but Jackie Boy decides he's going to have some more fun. He throws the inkwell at him, and he causes a dang riot as they all realize that he's yeah. there. And as everyone else leaves... Jack bashes in the face of this cop with the bench. He's like, I'll show you a hoax. He fucking murders this guy. The first guy killed is a police chief. And I tweeted about this last night, but that's just, that just rocks. Yeah. See, this is the thing. He keeps you guessing if he's a villain or not. He says, we'll kill the poor people, but then, oh, we're going to kill the police. (laughs) And he tells Kemp about some of his limitations. First off, he says food can be seen in his gut for an hour, which that's fucking nasty since it's all chewed up and swallowed in there. Mm -hmm. But he also says that he's visible in the rain since his physical form is still there. And smog, the soot settling on him would also be very visible. Yeah, just walking around around Liverpool or whatever. (laughs) Just That's not going to work. The air quality is so bad that he's like, (laughs) I just got to, some days I got to just hang out or I'll be visible. (laughs) A thousand cops are searching the countryside, soon to be joined by 10,000 volunteers. Goddamn. A lot of people. And Kemp sneakily places a call to the doctor and says, he's here. And like I said, Cranley says he'll come in the morning. So Jack isn't suspicious. They'll handle it themselves. But Flora overhears. <laughs> Kemp is too freaked out to wait as the doctor orders, though. And he calls the police and they say they don't have the manpower to surround the house, but they'll come. They think he's just like one of the other crank callers, too. That's, yeah. that's very fun because they're all they're just getting calls about like invisible man st- <laughs> stole my knickers or whatever. And, and <laughs> like, yeah, sure, sure, sure. <laughs> 
<laughs> I love that he just sounds like one more crazy person. That's yeah, <laughs> it's really fun. It really, it, it totally works, and they do a great job of those calls. Those calls into the police, you know, it just feels like laughs. But then when this happens, it yeah. totally makes story sense as well. Yeah. It clicks yeah. in as a good storytelling. Flora forces her father to leave now, actually, and Griffin forces Kemp upstairs. But they see Flora and Dr. Cranley pull up as they go. And Flora seems to like stun Griffin a bit and bring his mania down a little bit, just as she thought that it would. He says that he began this all so that he could gain wealth and fame and be deserving of her love. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeesh, dude. <laughs> like, aren't you already engaged? Just like. Yeah. <laughs> the other guy is literally like, please let me tell you how I feel. And she's like, no, I'm with yeah, this dude. You already, you already got this coworker twisted around and like. Damn, dude, just take the just take the dub. He's been missing for a month. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, I'm still hunting you down. Seems like he should have just let it happen. But he did this whole this whole thing. Uh, like he said, get this fame. But the mania starts to rise up again. As even in this monologue, oh, he does. starts going from that to, oh, I'm going to sell the secret and the, whatever government outbids the rest will take over the world. See, yeah, uh, he loses me there because I think the whole point of whether it's the ring or the potion or, or the suit is to be the only one who could be invisible. <laughs> Why would you sell that? It's like, Griffin, come on, you're you're not making a lot of sense there. <laughs> like, you kind of had something with like, I will just reshape the whole geopolitical order. By mm. killing whoever I want, <laughs> even if I don't agree with like some of the people you wanted to kill, but to be like, oh, I'm just going to sell it to some guy, <laughs> then he's going to sell it to everyone else, then everyone can be invisible. Foolish. Then you're like, bro, like you're susceptible to that as well. Like the, <laughs> it's like someone invisible could then kill you. I don't Take know. all your money. Super don't easy. get it. I don't get Unbelievable. it. Unbelievable. <laughs> Look, he's fully in the grip of madness at this point is all we can assume. Yeah. Yeah. He's, 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 he's not making a ton of sense. Jack insults her father when she asks him to let the doctor help. And he says, this power is more than anything he could even dream of. That's based. I love that. It's amazing. I love this monologue that he has here where he winds up closing with even the moon is frightened of me, frightened to death. Oh my god, that might be the best line. It's wonderful. It's really great. Even the moon. <laughs> <laughs> the whole world is frightened to death. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the peak grandeur of it. <laughs> He's like, the, the fucking moon <laughs> is a pussy. Fucking fight me, moon. <laughs> <laughs> He's threatening celestial bodies, and it's just, <laughs> you're like, yes. And, that, and, and in that moment, you're kind of with him. You're like, oh, hell yeah. But, you're like, bro. he's going to fucking take that moon out, baby. <laughs> he continues to go sick on that. <laughs> the police arrive, and Jack leaves, saying, I'll be back, and Kemp, you're fucked. Yeah. Oh, my God. He calls a shot. 10 o'clock tomorrow. You're fucking dead, kiddo. That is the frostiest shit. It's... <laughs> He, he just says it. I'm coming for you. 10 p.m. You're dead, Kemp. And the pants skipping down the road. Delightful. Really good. And I, I realize now that we read the Dr. Seuss thing, pale green pants with nobody inside them. No. There's a, I'm I'm almost positive now that this is inspired by the scene in The Invisible Man. But it, he, he has just like but one of his weird rhyming stories. It's in there with the Sneetches or something. But it's like someone being scared by a pair of green pants that are just walking down a road by themselves. 
And I, I think it, it's it, the illustration is very much reminds me of the skipping <laughs> skipping Invisible Man pants. And what does he sing? He's like singing something too. He sings "Pop Goes the Weasel." I think. <laughs> <laughs> that was top one hundred hit at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the the theaters were just like losing their mind with that scene. Back like, oh then. shit! How did they get the rights? <laughs> <laughs> Going out to buy the soundtrack after. <laughs> Can't stop listening to Pop Goes the Weasel from the Man, Invisible the Man. Demented. Hot 100. The police figure out that Griffin is the Invisible Man as Kemp unravels. Yeah, he's not keeping a lid on it. No, no, it's not. The search continues with Griffin continuing to cause mayhem, tossing guys over cliffs, and as promised earlier in the film, killing a signal guy and derailing a passenger train. And the movie really gives you plenty of time to contemplate his immense kill count compared to the others as the screams like fill the air. Yeah. It's so intense. Like everyone, everyone on that train knows they're about to die. You don't ever see that. You don't ever see them because it's just a model. Right. But like, yeah, they, they do not, they do not, they do not play that down at all. Yeah. <laughs> And it's so, so random. It's like very true to his, like his deranged philosophy of we'll just, we'll kill some people. And it's like, (laughs) Kemp isn't even up to asking like, well, like which people he's just like, you know, some of them, I don't even know how he gets in there and does that. Like the action of that is actually way more confusing (laughs) than like anything else in the movie. And the scale of it is so much bigger than anything else in the movie that you're just kind of baffled like okay he went there (laughs) it's so funny too when like the next scene they're like a hundred people just died (laughs) like fuck i'm glad they tell you well i mean first of all to go back to the police tv called i'm glad they tell you that he's dead because it's not clear for him just like bonking him in the head with the (laughs) chair i'm like oh that must really hurt but then they're like he killed that guy okay great 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 uh, and then, yeah, the train also, you're like, I just saw a little, you know, kind of scale model topple off a little paper mache cliff with a lot of like human screams added. So don't totally know the toll there. And then they <laughs> cut back to like a hundred people died. You're like, okay, great. So we're, great. the exposition is seamless. We're just throwing it in there. <laughs> yeah. We know exactly how many people he's killed. Plus 20 in the field that have been searching for him as well. So uh, a very high yeah. kill count for this guy. I wonder, yeah, I wonder if there was a sequence of previously planned sequence of him killing people in the field or whatever or even just like one person to just to show you that he was doing it because well he throws a couple people off the cliff as they search for him yeah 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 but uh but yeah that was probably like they had a bunch planned out and they were like we're not doing any more lighting (laughs) (laughs) we're done he keeps saying these things like oh we're gonna fucking kill random people he throw this train off the tracks but then walk into a, a bank rob it and just scatter the money <laughs> yeah just going full henry sugar for a second where oh yeah he's yeah and it, pretty interesting given given all his class markings so far that he would just be like oh it would be funny to maybe maybe that's what he's thinking is that it's like i'll watch these impoverished losers work themselves into a frenzy over like the, the couple of pound notes that i've just thrown on the ground could be and there's just just he's amusing himself at that point right yeah i guess so the police say that they're going to use Kemp as bait and then sneak him out the police station while Griffin waits to break in. And they also set a bunch of invisible man traps, including loose dirt, an oil gun, nets. What could go wrong? They really needed uh, Kevin from Home Alone there if they were if they wanted to have a shot. That's right. You got to get a classic Michael Jordan cutout moving around to distract him. <laughs> 
Griffin sees them, though, and he sits in the car waiting for Kemp, carrying out his promise by tying him up and sending the car over a cliff. Super fun. Amazing as the car just ignites in midair, the model. (laughs) I love before he kills him, he's doing the whole narration of how the murder is going to go down. That's another just frost. Yeah. I mean, Kemp, Kemp gets owned more than anyone <laughs> in this movie, even the police chief. Kemp sucks, though. Fuck that guy. He deserved it. <laughs> he, he says, does he say it'll be fun for 100 yards or so yeah. <laughs> to hit a boulder? <laughs> yeah, and then, it, and then a broken neck. Yeah, oh, like, it's great. It, him, in advance of it, the play-by-play <laughs> of like how the guy's going to die, frosty. Like, when have we ever heard a villain that frosty again it's so good it's it's so great especially because you know normally in today's day and age they you kind of expect oh he's doing this huge monologue this guy's gonna get out of it somehow but he narrates Mm -hmm. this and then executes (laughs) it perfectly (laughs) it goes down exactly like he said (laughs) oh that guy is so dead he's so dead and the police don't know what to do and they're like i guess he has to sleep or eat sometime yeah good 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 thinking cops you nailed it. Yeah, I guess so. Well, uh, he sneaks into a barn and he cozies up in the hay, but a farmer hears him and then sees the movement. And again, you know, there's an interesting class element where ultimately his terrorizing the the general populace is what leads to his yeah. downfall. Yeah, yeah, and I and I love that it's something kind of like because the farmer notices him first because he's snoring, yeah. which is this great like kind of day class A signifier. Where, you know, Jack Griffin fancies himself like a man who would never snore because it's, like, low class mm-hmm. or something. But lo and behold, of course, he's sleeping in a fucking barn and snoring. <laughs> Big snores, too. Big snores. <laughs> and the timing is perfect that they have found him here because snow is coming down, so it's cold, he'll need shelter, and the precipitation will make him visible. Oh, man. The farmer comes to tell the cops, and they're like, well, we can't take any chances. Burn his farm down. <laughs> you know, this is this is how they got John Wilkes Booth, too. <laughs> I mean, this is it's it's so funny to see them just, like, totally fuck this farmer over, and then uh, they advance as Jack runs, but his footprints in the snow mean that they can track him, and a shot rings out, the prints stop, and they bring him to the hospital where they say he's near the end. And Flora goes to him and says, he says, you are right. I should have left it alone. And as he dies, they hit you with one more banger of a special effects shot as he fades back into being skull first. And I love the doctor is like, the doctor has like a hilarious expertise here where he's like, well, once he dies, he'll become visible again. (laughs) How the fuck do you, bitch, how the fuck do you know that? (laughs) Nobody even knows about the invisibility potion, dude. What are you talking about? He just knows. He just knows. And I mean, yes, that that effect is just like a thrilling conclusion. I'm really, I'm really struck though by the the footprints and the falling in the snow, as like a technical marvel. Mm. Like I, I can I can almost in my head I can kind of like game out how like a lot of the other effects are done, but the footprints in the snow where there's just no one there, I'm like, that is that is for me like the lingering image of of the movie. Yeah, it's fantastic. Uh, and I don't know how the hell they did it. How'd they do it? My guess would be, this is just a guess, but probably a platform that they like pulled pulled down instead of impressing, they depressed and like let the footprint fall down instead. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. So it would have been like a lot of like fake snow and then they they just like create a, create a dip there. (laughs) 
I think that moment is actually also funny because he seems to be making shoe prints, even though he's not wearing shoes. <laughs> oh my god, you're right. <laughs> wow, this movie, so this whole movie is fucking is, unwatchable now. Trash. It's it's, it's it's both it's both like an awe-inspiring effect and a technical goof. <laughs> well, we've reached the point now, Miles, where we sum up why this is not just a good horror movie, but is in fact the best horror movie ever made. And I'm going to let you start. Wow. Well. I mean, we've covered a lot. I think the transformation, first of all, of the H.G. Wells stuff, just a really, like, foundational type of story and kind of, like, invention of a genre, as you say, like, this this horror and sci-fi combining, make it just, like, such a perfect early text for, like, a lot of cinema to come. Endlessly surprising, endlessly funny. You know, it's funny, also, my friend... Yesterday, I told her that I was going to watch... I have a friend staying here. I told her I was going to watch this movie. And she said, oh, is it scary? And I said, no, it's not actually scary. It's just fun. (laughs) Like, I'm just having a blast when I watch it from scene to scene. I get giddy about it. And, yeah, to go back to the Invisible Man's laugh, I'm just like, I'm laughing hysterically when I watch (laughs) this movie. And I'm not scared at all. And then, like, maybe couple hours later i'm like what if there wasn't this old man that would be really fucking scary yeah yeah and look not to say that you sound overly defensive but you have said i'm not scared several times now (laughs) (laughs) it's it's that thing where you're not you're not scared of the moment and then it is a thought experiment and then it sits with you for a while and then late at night you're like looking around it's dark oh man the invisible man could be in this room oh my god Yeah, I love it. I love it, too. Uh, To me, this is the best horror movie ever made because it is visually shocking at all points of the movie. Mm -hmm. Like to this day, the special effects are outrageously good. (laughs) It is incredible to me that they were doing this in 1933. It is when people say that old movies are by definition hokey and look like shit. I mean, that you know that they haven't actually watched any because this is just such a luxuriant special effects extravaganza for for horror. It's such a delightful landmark in horror history. It is my personal favorite of the Universal Monsters. I think it is so fun. He is having fun, and that means I'm having fun. and uh like you said tight 71 minutes who doesn't love a a 71 minute movie 71 minutes about a nasty little freak you can't see that's the fucking dream folks (laughs) they don't make them like that. they certainly don't and uh and and claude is just knocking it out of the goddamn park the entire way through he carries the movie through on his back which you can't even see (laughs) i wish i could do the voice a reign of terror (laughs) Rolling every single R. He really leans into it. That's the theatricality, baby. (laughs) I'm like, at certain points in this movie, I'm like, does he even sound British or does he just sound like he's on stage? (laughs) Who knows? Who knows? But, uh, but regardless, that's why this is the best horror movie ever made. Miles, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show, man. This was an absolute blast. Please tell people where they can find you on social, any projects you want to direct them towards, all that stuff. Yeah, I'm on Miles Klee, Twitter and Instagram, and 
you can find me at Mel Magazine, writing pretty much every single day. And I write a newsletter called Miles High Club. You'll find a few go to my Twitter page. And if you just Google me and my books, you can buy those books pretty easily. There are some horror type stories involved in those books so if you're a fan of yeah disgusting little freaks like the invisible man uh, you might enjoy some of those as well there you go highly recommend it thank you thank you thanks for having me such a great excuse to watch this movie for the millionth time and completely gush about <laughs> Yeah. It's brilliant. My pleasure. So Absolutely you. my pleasure. As far as my plugs, you can find me on Twitter at LittleHorrorPHL. That username extends pretty much everywhere, but Twitter is mostly where I'm at. You can also check out the Patreon if you want to get bonus episodes for just a few bucks extra. It's fun. We do all kinds of topics, like we talked about Vonnegut recently, and his, you know, speaking of the combination of sci-fi and horror hell yeah there's there's a lot of great social horror in vonnegut and uh, i am having a wonderful time talking about it and so we did that recently and all kinds of fun bonus episodes with all kinds of great guests including return guests so there you go check that out and um that's pretty much it all right everyone bye peace